0: At MasterCard, we believe that women-owned small businesses are uniquely inspiring. They're pillars of the community and have a measurable impact on the people within them. It's their secret sauce. We are deeply committed to helping address the daily challenges of all Canadian small businesses by putting our technology, cybersecurity solutions, digital resources, and partnerships to work for you every day. Discover them today at mastercard.ca forward slash small business. MasterCard. Visit us at scotiabank.com slash small business.
1: Welcome to the Startup Canada Podcast, where we talk to Canada's most innovative and entrepreneurial leaders and change makers. I'm your host, Rick Spence, and as a business journalist, editor, and entrepreneur, I've learned what makes Canadian startups special, successful, and scalable. Join me every Tuesday to hear news stories of Canadian entrepreneurs and learn about the moments that mattered most on their journeys. The Startup Canada podcast is a production of Startup Canada. Don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. Entrepreneurs from coast to coast to coast, welcome to the Startup Canada podcast. On the show today, we're excited to speak with Bradley Day, co-founder and co-CEO of Placemaking 4G, a different kind of recruiting agency based in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Bradley is on a mission to help build a more socially conscious recruiting industry. He wants more people to embrace the vulnerabilities that come with being human at work. Bradley leads with empathy and wants to inspire workplaces to embrace cultural differences and unique lived experiences. Bradley serves on the board of directors for United Way Halifax and supports Halifax's North End youth football teams. Bradley has 12 years of combined professional coaching and business management experience. For Bradley, reciprocity, community, and love are values that course through his bloodstream and allow him to do multidimensional work. Bradley, welcome to the Startup Canada podcast.
0: Thanks, Rick. I'm really excited to be here. Um, I've been, we've been working on setting this up for a while, so happy to be on here and happy to share some of my experiences and um, where we're at in this journey of entrepreneurship.
1: Yeah, fabulous. Thank you. The first question we usually ask here, and it's a way to make sure that our very busy entrepreneurial audience stays glued to the podcast through the courses. What what do you hope is the top advice or message that you hope fellow entrepreneurs will take away from our conversation?
0: Mm. It's a great question, honestly. And... and, um... I think when I reflect even today, um, we're designing a, a workshop that we're doing for for some folks tomorrow and and there's this notion of a practice and um and mastery. And uh, you know, I think that sometimes things can be oversimplified, but it's not necessarily the concepts I want you to take from today. I, I think it's the how we apply them and the the striving to achieve kind of mastery and that takes a daily you know weekly monthly practice in these things so i guess that's you know for me it has been transformative in my life in terms of how can i view everything as a practice um and no pun intended with all the, the kind of sports background but <laughs> Um, yeah, I I think, you know, looking at entrepreneurship, looking at your role as a a leader, as as a practice.
1: Okay, I didn't play football. What does practice mean in this sense of viewing everything as a practice? Hmm. Well, I'll uh, I'll give an example. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'll I'll
0: give an example that's non-sports related that I think uh, is a, a wonderful example if anybody's ever read um walking through anger by christian kant he he tells this really funny quick little tidbit of a story um, and it's you know it's about this really important you know national delegate that goes to um, this zen master who also happens to be this incredible portrait artist and the the delegate has um a beloved cat that it really wants to have uh, a portrait captured by this you know profound zen master and so they go and have this meeting and in the meeting the zen master says i, I can't do this right now uh, i'll need a week can you come back in a week so begrudgingly you know the the delegate kind of leaves and comes back in a week and says, okay let's do this and so the zen master again is like i'm i'm still not ready can you come back in a month and you know the delegates kind of really wants this to happen, but is not really used to being told no, or or you need to wait, but again, leaves and and comes back a month later. And this time, the Zen master says, I'm going to need you to come back in a year. And now, visibly upset, angry with the Zen master, he he begrudgingly leaves and, and comes back an entire year later. Upon arrival this time, the Zen master says, I'm ready. And in minutes draws the most beautiful portrait of this man's cat. It's like he has fully captured the essence of this cat. It is the most, you know, it was worth the wait. <laughs> and the immediate response from the delegate is like, wow, I'm, I'm blown away, this is incredible. And then he has a pause moment, where, wait a minute. If you could have done this in minutes, why did I wait a year and a month and a week why didn't you just do it the first time and the zen master walks over to his closet opens his closet where thousands of practice portraits fall out of the closet and i think you know to me (laughs) what seemingly takes minutes and mastery takes very 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 many moments in practice and that's kind of what i mean when i say practice is um, you know, being able to master something, it takes time and it takes real intentional practice. Um, so, so yeah, I, I love that little story and how it um, reminds me of, of how to be
1: patient and how to continue to practice. And Yeah. Beautiful story. Okay. Tell us about Placemaking 4G. What does the name mean? And what do you do differently? Mm. So, placemaking is a is
0: a term that people probably would have heard in more of an urban development, urban planning um, settings. Um, right now, they're doing a massive redesign of Halifax as one of the uh, parts of our downtown core um, that is a big placemaking project. How can they make that space instead of being overpasses that aren't friendly to pedestrians? How can they make it more walkable, more more of a place where you want to be and spend time in, a sticky place to be. And so we took this notion of placemaking, of urban design, or just the design in general, and applied it to a workplace setting. So placemaking is this notion of, of designing and creating spaces where people really want to be, sticky places, um, and being really intentional about how we build those spaces. And so how do we build those spaces i think it, it was in some ways born out of frustration and, and mine and my my co-founder matt's careers at the time it seemingly felt as if you know atlantic canada were the the not provinces where there's not opportunities for everybody to thrive and and um and feel fulfilled in their work and so we kind of looked into who's responsible for you know attraction and retention who's responsible for people getting access to opportunities and we looked at an industry of recruiting and we saw a lot of opportunity to do things differently than they have been done in the past and not to say that there's kind of anything uh you know really wrong with how things have been done but i think anything is is always right for disruption and so we looked at it and we said why are people saying that they would rather get a root canal, then go through an interview process. <laughs> this seems a bit broken. Um, so yeah, we started to look at how we can make it more enjoyable, how we can make it more equitable. Um, and I think now we've landed on our purpose statement. That's been written and rewritten over the years. Of um, equitable access to prosperity is what we're striving towards, and we've done things like in the first initial, you know, touch point with a candidate. We'll actually have a meditation, a mindfulness moment with the candidate, which to us, we feel is is quite unique to our process. And we felt that people show up to interviews in such a stressed out manner in which they're performing and have never really been able to relax and be themselves. And we want to curate more of those types of spaces where people can just be themselves. Um, And so that's how we've approached recruiting but the evolution of that is that you know it's one thing to bring people into spaces but what are the spaces you're bringing them into and i think when we first started we worked a lot with people in the impact sector whether that be nonprofit or for profits but people that were really looking to change the world and once you build a brand and build a reputation you start getting clients from maybe organizations that don't necessarily fully align with our values are a little earlier on their journey of creating safer spaces for everyone. So we then pivoted into a lot more work now in kind of laying these foundations of belonging with organization.
1: How would your clients say your work is different? What kind of results do they say that you help them uh, achieve? Mm.
0: Yeah, well, for one, um, I think just recently to a search that is wrapping up for me. And often you were, you're working with a selection committee, you're working with the board. And I guess just some of the feedback that I've heard in how we really make the process for the candidate feel comfortable. You know, I always tell candidates, I'm here to help you put your best foot forward. And I, I really mean that. And we really work with candidates to help them understand how to position themselves, how to feel comfortable, how to make the interview feel like more of a conversation than just somebody peppering questions at you and to you. So, you know, I think just the space between the notes, uh, you know, life happens in the space between the notes. And I think that in our process, the magic happens in, in not necessarily the offer to the candidate, the, the the posting of the job online, like these big moments that you normally talk about. It's all those little conversations in between that we take the time and energy to to put, um, you know, purposeful energy into. Um, but honestly, that so the result of some of those efforts have, you know, 70% of the candidates that we've placed have been from equity deserving groups. And I don't, um, and if, if folks you know, are wondering, what do I mean when I say equity deserving, if that language is, is, is new for you, um, you, you often hear people say things like diverse communities or um, equity seeking. Um, we've, we've moved to kind of equity deserving as, as a language to describe folks from people that have been traditionally kept out uh, of processes, of organizations. Um, so those would be people from the indigenous community, people from the uh, the the black community here locally, nationally, people of color, um, people from the two S L G B T Q plus people living with disabilities, um, and then you know even women in non-traditional fields or people in general, and 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 those identify as women in non-traditional fields. So um, that's how we would kind of describe um you know people that are equity deserving and so 70 percent of the the searches that we've done have resulted in that and i think it's not necessarily that we are designating these positions or we are only a firm that is looking to fill roles with people from equity deserving groups the way we've designed our process is to view people as contributors not as a fit but how does your lived experience contribute to an opportunity how is your whole being contribute to an organization not to fit into somebody's culture to have group think and those kind of things but how can we truly enrich um, these cultural environments yeah
1: that said that that is that sounds to me really profound obviously i haven't been keeping up with uh, with this sector but the idea of people as contributors not just people who have to fit in um that's a pretty exciting concept obviously it it opens it opens the gates to uh, um employers being more um open to different types of candidates than they were thinking through people with different kinds of experience, whether business or life experience, and uh, amazing results when these people join their teams and are able to bring different points of view, different uh, experiences to the job.
0: Absolutely, Um, you know, language is so important. And one of the things that we realized that when we first started P4G um, was that, you know, why is it that I'm I'm feeling a, a weird response to this word fit? It, it actually kind of feels quite othering to me, like, what? Why is it that I need to fit in? I think, for my whole life, I've been code switching, I've been covering, I've been making my experience more palatable for those around me instead of truly being myself that's why i'm not resonating with this word fit fit is actually the opposite of belonging if you think of a moment i think we can all think of a moment in our lives where we had to change something about ourselves in order to feel comfortable in order to fit in that's not belonging so to me we immediately fit was the f word you know it was (laughs) it was not something that We'd uh, the early days would would do burpees if somebody said fit on a call or something. It was you know we really trying to (laughs) kind of um, uh, eliminate that from our vocabulary. But what replaces it? And I I think a lot of times what we mean when we say fit is that we want people who align with the organization's culture and values. You know if I'm an environmental company, you want you don't want to hire somebody who is littering on the streets and uh, you know, doesn't care about, um, polluting our environment and, and these things, right? You want somebody who aligns with the organization's values and what the organization cares about. That's, I think, sometimes what we mean when we say fit. When we use language like that, we, we tend to, um, look for likeness, um, in, in, uh, in the people that we bring into our organization so how can we instead of look for fit look for a contributor then we're we're changing how we view that individual and how their contributions will kind of enhance and um contribute to our organization so um that simple switch in language has been you know something that has been really pivotal in having folks understand the difference between
1: how to recruit for fit and how to recruit for contribution. That is just uh, so cool. What kind of influence are you having in the marketplace? Are are we seeing any other uh, recruiting firms adopt any of your language or processes or are you guys uh, outliers? Yeah,
0: I I mean, um, I don't know. You'd you'd maybe have to ask them. (laughs) Um you know, I, I think, you know, if I if I think about it, some of the uh because when you're when you come from nowhere, like I, I we mapped myself, um we didn't have any kind of recruiting background. Most people who start a recruiting firm were recruiters for decades and then became a partner at some firm and then said, Okay, why am I making you all this money when I can be making myself all this money? And that was the angle that they probably started their firms like oh there's a money opportunity here i'm going to go make some money and we started our firms oh there's an opportunity to disrupt and have an impact and create safer spaces and you know provide access for people that haven't had access and that was our motivation um i failed to mention that we're also a social enterprise so 60 percent of our profits go back into communities we We really are in this for impact, not for the sort of money aspects of of all of this. So I think um, there's been some of the larger firms that are usually in more corporate spaces that usually focus on more executive search that are entering the mid-level market, launching new firms, stuff like that, that are um, focusing on, you know, Nonprofit leadership spaces that we've uh, come up through um when you don't have a reputation of being a recruiter how do you get clients at the beginning and a lot of clients were people that just like you know these guys are fired up and i like what they're saying and i i'm going to give them a shot you know i might be crazy but (laughs) i'm going to give them a shot and you know so it's not like we were going to jump right into this industry and start working on c-suite level roles of you know ceos and cfos and and director level searches that that wasn't we weren't known for that we didn't come from recruiting so a lot of where we have built up to is we're now starting to do senior level searches but a lot of where we came from was in that entry mid-level and i am seeing now some more kind of competition and and importance placed on, on those, on those entry and mid-level roles. Um, So that, I don't know if it's influenced by us or if it's just a national trend. Um, And, you know, I don't think that it was influenced at all by us, but I'm really happy to see firms like BIPOC search group in Ontario, that they have a national scope that they do executive search focused on BIPOC. And, you know, we need more firms like that. Um, competition is great. I, I, I encourage more people to be, be approaching this work in the way that that we are, and and looking to create uh, safer spaces for people to have access to um, positions of power within society and organizations.
1: Right. I can hear a couple of our the entrepreneurs in our audience right now saying, "Okay, so you started for impact, but is the money there?" <laughs> um. Yeah and
0: you know we we have 13 staff who all have families and mouths to feed and bills to pay in a in an environment where um let's let's name the elephant in the room inflation uh, things are getting expensive um you know so how do we uh, we we pay people very competitive wages and um are able to sustain that you know I think We've been very fortunate to have you know, a strong client base since we've started and some of the new areas of work that we're getting into um, we've started doing a lot more consulting and, and doing a lot more into consulting space. We're building out right now it's in the you know pretty final stages uh, of an online learning platform with 11 different educational modules around, this notion of creating the foundations of belonging in the workplace. So that's another kind of product that we're gonna have pretty soon. And we've also been getting more into the tech space. We've partnered with the Ontario government and created a, a platform called My Job Match that has, um, has had some uh, provincial funding through the Ontario government. And is a tool for people working um, with some of the most vulnerable populations in Ontario trying to help them gain access to employment, primarily people living with disabilities. Um, So, you know, we've we've found ways to, um, you know, turn impact into recruiting. And this is an old stat. I wonder what it is now. But recruiting was, when we started six years ago, uh, a $7 billion industry in Canada alone. So it's not that there's not money in this, but how can you use business as a tool for good? I think that we often think about social enterprise as a place that you can't make money. If we just looked at all of these, you know, that's why it's it was one of the last things I mentioned that we are a social enterprise. I want to focus on the work and the impact first, um, right, right. and and you know the money back to community is is the icing on the cake. It's It's how can we use business as a tool for good? It's conversations that are more prominent in other countries. You know, I've had the privilege of going to Scotland and Ethiopia for the social enterprise world forum. And when you go to those spaces and see what's happening on the global scale of how people are using business uh, to create impact, it's profound. And I always come back incredibly inspired to do more of that here if we just imagine. Some of the most lucrative businesses in Canada had the same model of 60% of their profits back to community, and weren't so driven by, you know, shareholder profits, and they were more driven by impact. What world would we be living in? Um, so that's, you know, the motivation for me, and I hope, I hope that, uh, you know, we were small business of the year this year, voted on by kind of the Halifax Chamber of Commerce here, and so to be recognized as like this is what business of the year looks like that is a social enterprise like you can
1: do both you can have business success and be focused on the greater good absolutely i was just seeing one estimate yesterday that said that if every if every business had a uh, i mean i guess it was a simple calculation for something to do, but it, but if every business had a commitment to devote, say, 10% of profits to their communities, uh, you know, that's $333 billion a year that <laughs> would suddenly become available to make places more livable. So uh, yeah, what an opportunity that is. And I'm not saying that
0: we, yeah, and if I, just one last point on that, I think, I'm not saying that every year we're putting a ton of money back into um community you know i think we give a lot of discounts um in terms of making our work accessible and if you look at the monetary value of those discounts it's it's a lot um but the reality is that sometimes you need to do the things as a business like retained earnings and and build up more of a, a cash reserve and you know make sure that your people are paid and sometimes you may not even turn a profit so it's you know 60 percent of profits well you have to be profitable and you have to make sure you're doing the things to make sure that your business is going to be around in five ten years so um it's not that it's not that you want to be uh conscious bled but you want to be conscious led so um you know you don't you don't want to kind of burn your people out or you know make build something that's not Regenerative or sustainable, so yeah,
1: yeah, amazing stuff. You mentioned that you've done some work for the Ontario government. Um, how much of the the work that you do is not in sort of the Halifax metropolitan area?
0: That tech project is is solely with the Ontario government. So folks that we met through social enterprise world, but in the recruiting space, um, I would say most of what we're doing is in Atlantic Canada. Um, and we've, you know, had some clients in the Ontario market, um, and have some partners out West, but, um, haven't done a ton of work outside of the Atlantic region. I would say, you know, we've done a a handful of searches here and there, um, in the Ontario market.
1: So you you won't turn down a client from Winnipeg or Ottawa or Vancouver? No,
0: absolutely not.
1: And How much of the business is, you mentioned consulting. I'm just wondering what, what, what kind of consulting you do. I mean, I'm I'm hoping it's something about helping other businesses get it <laughs> in terms of <laughs> making a place for people. Yeah, exactly. It's it's that place
0: making. Um, you know, and whether you want to call it DEI work or what have you, I think, you know, a lot of organizations, this is a, a big conversation right now. How do we, how do we do it? You know, there's a lot of talk about it. Um, and you know, I think a lot of times, especially since, uh, since George Floyd and the resurgence of the black lives Matter movement and, and this kind of social awakening in, in some ways that we've seen, there's been a lot of pressures that people have felt and to, to adapt, um, which it's like, finally, um, for for people that have uh, you know been oppressed by these systems and societally it it, it feels like uh, oh you're finally starting to to see it but you know how can we work with organizations that need it most and because if we don't who will and I think you know part of the journey that we're looking to take them on. There are you a know, multitude of, um, of components in that journey, and it really depends on how bought in they are. It starts with leadership. Leadership really needs to see and understand, not just like how can we create and take the actions we need to take for people to view us a certain way, but how can we truly understand why we're doing this? Um, you know, if you... Start to just take action and you don't necessarily know why you're doing it other than you had some complaints or you have people pressuring that's not a reason um, you know and if it's for economic reasons that's also not a reason you can make you can make the economic argument that's what they were making in the south um, when things were starting to become integrated and and slavery was, you know, you know, being abolished. They were making the economic argument. So if you're still making the economic argument this time around, I think I, I think I want to challenge you to pause and think about really why you're doing this. So it's really taking organizations on this journey of why they're doing it, how they can do it appropriately, and how can they do it effectively um, in terms of creating safer spaces where people not just belong, but are celebrated. And I think of, um, you know, I'll give an example of a, a way that um, our organization has done, you know, small things to, to start to, to work on things like this. You know, the first person we ever hired uh, was at the beginning of the pandemic. And um, it was also very close to the beginning of Ramadan. And they had lost their entire community they're Muslim and and normally um, we celebrate Ramadan together in community and it was a very isolating period for everyone as we all know and so Matt and I decided well let's create our own community and let's do Ramadan with you and ever since then now we have you know a few different members of our team who celebrate Ramadan Ramadan observe Ramadan and we do that every year now with them and Sometimes we get it wrong. Sometimes we plan retreats during Ramadan, which you're not supposed to do. And sometimes, you know, you learn from the experience, but um, those folks feel celebrated now. They feel, you know, one of our team just bought a house here and decided to lay down roots in Nova Scotia and make this home home. Um, You know, they had many, many conversations with their partner about moving to different areas and, and, you know, exploring places that had, you know, deeper roots in their, their community that they identify with, but um, decided to stay here for those reasons. So I think you know, that's one example of how we've done it, but that's not going to look the same in every organization. So we work with folks to really understand how they can implement this work. And that you know, starts with measurement, you know, doing surveys and, and things like that to understand your demographics, your sentiment around this work. and educational work and do strategy work so there's there's a lot in it honestly it, it depends on how committed and and um bought in your leadership will be in in this work
1: All right i'm very impressed by your ability to take a look at the at an industry and see its flaws so clearly and reframe it uh so consciously um i think that's a real gift your background um, is a banker for five years with PIMO and assistant special teams coordinator with the Toronto Argonauts Football Club for, for I guess, a season. Um, where does this gift for changing things, <laughs> like getting inside and changing their essence, where does that come from? Mm,
0: yeah. Um, you know, I think, I think I'm grateful for my experiences that I've had in, in, in work. And they've taught me what resonates with me and what doesn't. You know, I loved when I worked in banking, I loved, you know, you were dealing with people that were dealing with a lot of different life changes in a very vulnerable state. Money is something, you know, sometimes our spouse has no idea how we spend our money. It's a very private, vulnerable thing. And people are dealing with death. They're dealing with birth. They're dealing with their first home. They're dealing with investments. They're dealing with retirement. There's so many things that you're dealing with in life, and I loved helping people through that journey. That was part that I liked about it. Um, at the end of the day, it was, you'd make an it it incredible
1: a, financial advisor. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was the end of the day.
0: It was a bank, and really, what the bank cared about was shareholder dividends and and their stock price and and sales and things like that that didn't necessarily align with my values and what I valued. So it taught me what I cared about and taught me what I didn't care about. I think your to answer your question it comes from my family um my grandfather his name was buddy day a delmore buddy day um and for for those that haven't heard that name before um there's there's now a, a street named after him here in halifax a learning center named after him here in halifax he was a, a professional boxer first but he used that athletic platform um to Give him a voice for social change, and so you know a lot of the things I'm talking about are born through him and his journey and and the inspiration i I get from my grandfather, my father, my community my 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 whole family um has always been about this, so that has definitely been a privilege to grow up with somebody who was in my family um the first black sergeant at arms in Canada. Um, he played a, a role in starting the Black United Front, the Black Educators Association. Um, he played a role in writing the Black Report, which is an educational document that is still referenced to by our education system here in terms of the inequities that Black people faced in terms of access to education. So he did things, you know, he used his platform for for so much, um, so much social change and fought for the voiceless and. That's always been a privilege. I, I, you know, people hear my last name here locally and immediately the response is always day, are you related to Buddy Day? And as soon as they hear that, it's instantly a privilege of mine to have that as a last name. I grew up very close to um, UNIAC Square, which is a public housing community here. Um, And, you know, a lot of people I grew up with their last name wasn't a privilege. And I I understand the privilege that I hold, and um, I want to be able to use my upbringing and motivations that I had um, in order to um, allow people to see the gifts that they have. So um, yeah, it's it's always been something that um, has been ingrained in me, I guess, and I owe that to my family.
1: Right. Um, I guess we should uh, call an apple an apple here and say that Halifax has had a very, very difficult history regarding its black community. Um, for you to go back there and uh, and, 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 and to, to, to Halifax with the mission that you're on, did that make you a little bit nervous or did you figure this, this city is ready, this region is ready for me? Uh-
0: yeah. I, I don't think I had any kind of mission. Um, you know, I, I came home and, uh, you know, home called to me. I wanted to lay down deeper roots on top of the already established roots. And in no way um, did I feel any kind of hesitation of coming home. It's always been a place that really gives me energy and grounds me. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I didn't know that I was on this kind of I didn't know what social enterprise was before we started a social enterprise so um, I, I guess I you uncover your unconscious beliefs as you kind of navigate this thing we called life and um, yeah I, I guess to speak to that history that you alluded to um, on my grandmother's side uh, the Barton side of my family um, we know a little bit more history um, because of my cousin, Alistair, has done decades of research on that side. My seventh great-grandfather, I don't know know if people, this is is more of a national audience, people might not know the history of Nova Scotia, but the first Blacks in Canada, Um, you know, up until the 60s, the majority of Black people in Canada were in Nova Scotia. Um, And my seventh great-grandfather, William Barton, came here in 1789 as a Black pioneer and would have purchased land um, in the southwest region of the province near Digby um, in what was to become Jordantown, one of 50-plus Black communities across Nova Scotia. I say it's a unique story to know, but not a unique story, Uh, you know, there's 50-plus black communities who founded them how did they come to be what were the conditions like these are not things that are taught in our history so when we think about truth and reconciliation there's still a long long road to go down in terms of uncovering those truths which is part of the delmore buddy day learning institute's mission uh, as an afrocentric educational institution Um, So part of my grandfather's legacy is attached to that work. And so this is kind of, when I say ingrained in me, it's, um, yeah, something that is, is, you know, in my history, in my
1: um, core to my being. Right. So I guess it's been pretty useful that you have this gift for reframing and for getting other people interested in, in in taking a second look at how they do things um so many of of our entrepreneurial listeners are employers and they're probably wondering what they can do to make their organizations more welcoming more accessible more place making um any thoughts on that call me Um no they like to try first and then call when they mess up. So what could they try to do yeah, first?
0: Yeah, I think you know, uh humility is is probably one of the things that um we we can we can practice right away um in order to uh kind of fully understand how people want to show up. Yeah. So I, I think if you're not allowing psychological safety is a foundational tool in which people need in order to show up in a way that is their closest to their full self that's possible and psychological safety looks different for each and every person so just because you think something is works for you or works for the quote unquote majority of your staff you need to be able to create policies you need to create an environment where everybody can feel heard and seen of done in this, so many times in workshops where we put scenarios together, and people will, um, you know, talk about like what would they have done differently? How would they have challenged that person who, you know, perpetuated something that was harmful? And often, every single time, what we get is the feedback from people is like, well, it depends on what my role is. Am I the hiring manager, or am I the person that reports to that hiring manager? Because I wouldn't feel comfortable being able to challenge the hiring manager if I wasn't in a position of power. And that goes to show me that the power structures that we've created. So as leaders, humble yourself. If somebody gives you feedback, apply it, thank them for giving you that feedback. I think we want to be defensive, we want to we don't want to show vulnerability we have to lead by example and be the ones that are vulnerable and share our failures. One of the things that we've done at P4G is we have this thing called FAL. It's just an acronym. It's just fail and learn. And, you know, weekly I'm sharing something I failed at because that's an opportunity for me to grow and learn. And I think when we show our people that it creates a culture of people wanting to share what their vulnerabilities are, share with you, how do you can get better, and uh, you know, I guarantee you, if you if you just walk into that with curiosity and humility, and try to suppress your ego, then you'll be able to kind of in, create an environment that people feel that foundation of just that base psychological safety to be able to challenge authority.
1: Wow, that's beautiful, and that that, that sounds doable. It sounds practical. It sounds like a really good first step. Um, another challenge that a lot of entrepreneurs are facing now is to create a better workplace culture, even though many of the people on the team are working virtually. And this of course is a problem for organizations all over the globe. Um, what have you seen that works for virtual organizations? in order to help change the culture there. Yeah, and
0: this is tricky. I think, you know, there's a, there's things that work for us and they may not be something that works for everybody, um, but I can share a few things that, that have worked for, for us. I think, you know, it, it takes the level of like engaging your team in that process. It depends on how big you are. We have the privilege of being a smaller team. There's only 13 people and we have the privilege of being in an environment where we can meet um all together some some things you, you you don't get the ability to have an all-team meeting because there's never an opportunity to gather the whole team so it can be challenging and it's i i understand the limitations that are out there in some spaces but i can share what works for us in, in terms of creating that and i think one of the things that we've done and have always adjusted um, depending on feedback from our staff um, is head heart check-ins and so every wednesday um, we will start off our morning at 8 30 with an hour long uh zoom call where people just get to check in it has nothing to do with work they check in with their head their heart um, and that has evolved now we have movement moments we have um, we talk about some of, the, some of the innovations that are happening in the, the social sectors. We have our impact hour. Um, we've, we have educational opportunities. We have facilitators come in. We have mental health facilitators come in. We've turned it into more of a learning, but sometimes we just have a traditional, what we would call quote unquote, a traditional head heart where we just check in with each other. How are people doing? How are people feeling? Um, and on Mondays and Fridays, we have a, a half an hour call with our whole team and we go through one by one and people check in with a rose, a thorn and a bud and they set a theme for the week. So you might say how your weekend was. So this was one thing that was a rose. This was one thing that I'm excited about. And this is one thing that was a thorn um, in terms of a bud and a thorn. And then you say, you know, this week. Uh, efficiency is my theme, I really need to focus on these areas. And then on Friday, we'll check in, you know, how the week went, rose, thorn bud. Um, and, you know, I think it's also up to the managers of different departments to create those environments in the different departments where you might be having more smaller team meetings and creating those spaces. So yeah, um, that's a couple of ways that We've been able to maintain connection. A few weeks ago went to the mosque to to celebrate Iftar with um with some of our Muslim staff and, and with the folks in three hundred and fifty people at that mosque breaking iftar together. It was a beautiful moment. And we got to be there with some of our staff and, and be in community in that way. So um ways in which you can be in community in in ways in which that you're you're taking an interest in your staff and and what's important to them is also a great
1: way to kind of create connection at times if, if you have the ability to do that. Right. Those are great ideas and great examples. Uh, thank you so much. Well, I want to congratulate you on your success uh, so far at uh, Placemaking 4G and the impact you're having in the community. What do you think this organization will look like five years from now?
0: Ooh, um, I wish I knew what it would look like five months from now. Um, <laughs> but you know what? We've been around five years, and so it was actually a really um, a really cool moment. This uh, we had a leadership team retreat around around uh, the Christmas kind of holidays, um, and um, we were actually thinking five years ahead, which we've never really had the privilege of, of doing. Anybody who's started a small business, I mean, I think you're thinking about tomorrow, not necessarily. You're thinking about that next payroll and you're thinking about that client and you're thinking about all those other things you don't often have
1: but there's one little part of you that's thinking <laughs> about what could we be doing tomorrow
0: yeah, yeah, so um we had the privilege of looking five years down the road, and I don't know i i it's a it's a i I hope that we have expanded our impact more nationally, and I don't mean that from that we have offices everywhere. I think that if people are adapting and adopting our language, our ways of doing things um, nationally, globally, um, and you're seeing a shift away from this notion of fit um, to more places that are healthier, safer spaces to Um, work and thrive then you know that's ultimately what i'd love to see um that uh yeah we're getting more opportunities to do thought leadership globally and um that's that's really i don't know I, i tend to focus on the impact side of things not necessarily the specifics of our organization but um yeah, I, I I guess I'd love to just see the expansion of the impact and and see a lot
1: more safer um, spaces that, that exist here. Right. Well, that's my hope, too. So I hope we're both right. <laughs> yeah. We've been talking with Bradley Day, the co-founder and co-CEO at Placemaking 4G in Halifax. Uh, thank you so much, Bradley, for telling us this story, sharing the way you look at the world which is really very unique and very special and very powerful and we will uh, keep our eye on you and we will stay in touch awesome thank you so much for having me it's been super fun to reflect on all
0: of these things so i appreciate the opportunity thanks bradley